waiting for when I finish this novel. And yeah, it's a big topic for people of, I think, my generation in Spain. A lot of other writers, I think especially women writers and queer writers, are investigating these topics because we're the first generation that was born in democracy. And um, it was easy to feel like this prosperous type of energy or the official line that everything was in the past and not to be talked about. That clearly kind of falls apart soon enough as you grow up. Recollecting Europe was a residency programme devised by the Goethe Institute London, which provided journalists the opportunity to travel through the UK for four weeks. It aimed to reach emerging journalistic voices, encouraging critical thinking and creative debate. Against the backdrop of the UK's departure from the EU, the journalists in residence examined the social and political impact Brexit was having on civil society in the UK. The 2020 residency programme unfortunately had to be postponed due to the pandemic. One of the 2020 residents we worked with was Marta Balsalls. Born in Catalonia, Marta wanted to bring a more South European perspective to the project and had intended to travel around the UK and capture the opinions through the rather unconventional Gonzo style of journalism. Gonzo style of journalism relies on the reporter's personal involvement in the story. While traditional reporting relies on hard facts, gonzo journalism takes readers into the mind and feelings of the writer as the story unfolds. For this episode, we speak to Marta about her journalistic residency piece called Cold Tea, what it means to be European three years after Brexit, and her recent creative writing endeavours. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm your host, Lucy Rowan. Marta Balsas is a writer, editor, translator and artist. Her work has received support in the form of fellowships, residencies, grants and awards by Headland Centre for the Arts, Vermont Studios Centre, Arts Council England, the London Writer Awards and many more. Her work has been published in the New York Times magazine, The Guardian, where she worked for four years as a staff journalist, Vice... Elle Magazine, The Paris Review, and other outlets. She's currently at work on her debut novel and on a creative non-fiction manuscript titled Not My Story to Tell, on intergenerational trauma surrounding the Spanish Civil War. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Talking Culture Podcast. Today we are joined by Marta Balsels. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marta. Thank you for having me. Uh, You were one of our residents, part of the Recollecting Europe residency. As part of this, you documented the journey through Brexit. Could you explain your angle and what made you want to write this piece? Yeah, so I applied for this Um, residency back in 2019 so it was a completely different context 
Actually, my, my guardian editor sent me the information for this project. And I just thought I, I was grappling with Brexit myself. It felt quite recent still in 2019. I thought it would be interesting to explore the prejudice and misunderstanding I was encountering personally in England, journalistically, and to explore attitudes and reactions to Brexit around the country as a Southern European journalist. And my angle at the time when I proposed this project was to almost write like a gonzo piece, and it was centered on the cultural side of Brexit. With this project, I mean, from start to finish, very unfortunately, it was impacted from multiple angles, right? You had Brexit, you had COVID. During this journey, what elements of this project did you have to rework and why? So right when I got the news that I that I was um, accepted into the residency, COVID happened. So everything was kind of stalled for about a year. I remember there was a window between lockdowns when I could have done it, but I think we probably forget how anxious we all were and how horrific that period was in terms of also mental health. And to be honest, going around the country at the time, even if it was legal or you know possible for some weeks that summer or autumn, it felt like an impossible thing to do and like quite a terrifying thing to do. What ended up happening was that the project shifted quite a bit from what I had originally proposed. So I also started to maybe question my role as a journalist and the the idea of putting, you know, my face and my voice in the project, like so visit, so kind of at the center of the project almost. And to quote unquote, like bother people and ask them what they thought just felt completely ridiculous. And to be clear, other journalists have done exactly this project that I was envisioning, and they've done it marvelously. And I actually think that's, you know, it's almost meant to be that way. You know, like, they were the right people for it. I think when I proposed it, I was in a very different place in my life and still trying to do a certain kind of journalism that after all the lockdowns and after, you know, COVID and after Brexit came into effect, I sort of drifted away from completely. And so it all... It all changed and it became more of a local project or a, a smaller project, I guess, in scope, geographical scope. I eventually did go traveling and I eventually did interview lots of people. And by the time I did, it, you know, Brexit felt like an almost just faded, like ancient thing, which it's not. It's very much, you know, having a daily effect on our lives. But basically nobody wanted to talk about it anymore, I guess. And a lot more was happening in the country. Um you know, there was a new prime minister who tanked the economy in one week. The queen had died. I did interviews before this too, but um, but it was this tumultuous period. I mean, just, you know, a bit of a nightmare in all ways. And people were just very disillusioned across the political spectrum, I think. I also think I had been excited about maybe interviewing Brexiteers in particular, almost as a provocation, because I had a lot of interactions with, let's say, Tories or people who lived in the countryside who were Tories and who just saw Brexit as a fun kind of experiment that had nothing to do with their lives. And they found it really exciting, you know, and that made me so angry. And I just, you know, I kind of wanted to do this project partly as a reaction to that, but I didn't really care about talking to those people anymore, like two years later. Um, and they're not the most important part of the project at all. So yeah, it was interesting. It changed quite a lot. And it ended up being a bit of a I guess, personal essay as well in the end. 
the way it ended up being, it does include interviews, it does include pictures, um, but it's also a bit of um, a collage. You know, there's also statements, excursions, personal reflections, and yeah, different types of writing, because it felt like a very confusing period. Within the piece itself, you know, you talking about, you know, confusing period, it sounds like you were also confused because you described this moment where you're sat in a dive bar in Margate and you received this message saying that you've been granted with uh, British citizenship and in which this moment you described this inner turmoil and these mixed feelings about it. What was it that motivated you to go after this British, uh, British citizenship and what changed your mind about it afterwards? I don't think my mind was changed. It was always going to... I was always going to have mixed feelings about it. Um, I applied with mixed feelings, I suppose. But a lot of the reasons for applying were practical. But also, I'm, you know, it was quite an emotional moment. It was, I was proud to to become British, I guess I would say. Um, I'd lived in the country for almost a decade. And I do love the country. I love a lot of things about it. I also have my other, my other nationality, which I have a lot of mixed feelings about as well. <laughs> so yeah, it was almost a no brainer, particularly with Brexit. And I was privileged to be able to apply. It also costs a lot of money, so it's not it's not a straightforward thing. But you know, I was able to, and I and I did it, and I'm glad I did it. And yeah, when I when I got the news, it was sort of bittersweet, but I was generally happy to to receive it. And the ceremony was very sweet, actually. It was in a in it was in a town hall that was very liberal and you know, progressive. And so, which are my values as well. So it felt, it felt really good. Where was, where was the ceremony in London or? Yeah, in Islington. Thinking and talking about Brexit uh, now almost feels a bit outdated as probably does asking you this question, but what does it mean to you to be European and how has that changed, uh, you know, throughout this project? And is your perspective different now than when it was when you first started? It's very difficult to know what it means to be European anymore. In the past, I had a more positive notion of what it meant. I mean, I suppose I always saw it in opposition to other places, like maybe the US is an easy comparison. Um, so I felt like, even though they're completely different countries, um, you know, comprising the EU, but, you know, there's the idea of, that we have common values around certain things. and. Um, it made sense after the world wars and I do think it makes practical sense and that it's generally much better to be in it than outside of it. I, you know, I benefited from the Erasmus program, for example, which was a very, very, very positive experience, I think, for th thousands or millions of young Europeans, you know, meeting people from all over the EU in that way made you feel like there was a common project or something. We definitely shared something. And in terms of, you know, comparing it to the US, for example, which is a country I've traveled a lot in, in terms of, for example, gun control or, you know, not having guns, or in terms of how, you know, they see um, healthcare versus how we see it in, you know, in the EU, it's, it's an obvious difference. And I feel very European in regard to all those topics. I've also been really disillusioned with it. You know, I traveled to Melilla, which is uh, one of the Spanish enclaves in Northern Africa which are border towns where significant EU borders and the way those places are fortified. We are appalled by Trump's, you know, supposed 
Trump's wall. But this is not that different to that. You know, it is absolutely horrifying. You know, yeah, it's it's difficult. The way that the Catalan um, independence and, you know, Spanish political repression was not dealt with by the EU also was very disappointing. And I'm under no illusions that it's perfect or anything like that. But yeah, so I also have mixed feelings about it. But practically, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy it exists. It can be improved for sure. And yeah, being European, I mean, if you also kind of educate yourself about colonialism, for example, you start to feel much less proud, as you should, of this supposed, you know, like freedom, land or whatever, because definitely look at the history of what these countries have done around the world and why they get to uphold these values now and to be so wealthy as well. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how, you know, we, we like to point the finger a lot at the US and sort of, I think, from afar, it's very easy to point the finger, but we have a, many parallel problems, you know, going on on our own turf and something that is really important to stay educated about and active about. And just moving on now, so kind of moving into where you are, so coming away from the Recollecting uh, Europe residency, uh, something that won't be common knowledge for most of the listeners is that whilst you were writing this piece, you came to a somewhat of a crossroads, not only in you know uncertainty about whether you wanted to stay in the UK or not, but also in with your journalistic writing. Uh, this has been a real period of change, uh, reflection and re-evaluation for you. How are you finding it all and what led you to this crossroads with your journalistic work? It's funny because I'm probably still in this crossroads <laughs> or you might be on the other side of something, but it's still, you know, it's it's not linear sometimes quite or quite literally linear, but a lot of it was simply the reality of being a freelance journalist in London which has become infinitely harder in the last few years due to the cost of living crisis, etc. I mean, it's for me, for me personally, it's been almost impossible to make a living out of this with everything, like the cost of everything rising, but my income not rising at all, even though you try, you try to raise your rates, but publications keep shutting and people don't have the budget to pay you more for the same work. And I'd been freelance for quite a few years and um, I, you know, I was finding it increasingly hard, but also it's actually a very natural point to arrive at, I think, for myself, because I was always going to end up realizing that what I loved was the creative side of it and that what I loved was writing. And I started to leave journalism behind, I guess, because what I got from it was mostly kind of adrenaline and the dopamine, the dopamine of a byline and things like that. But I wasn't really getting any meaning or fulfillment. It felt like the work I was doing, I was churning it out too quickly. I wasn't really, I didn't have the time to delve into anything or to, yeah, to spend time on anything I was interested in because in order to make a living, I had to produce a lot and quickly. And a lot of it was quite short pieces. Yeah, I, I think I gave it a really good shot. I tried and tried and tried. And I did some work I'm proud of. Yeah, I mean, this probably happened around 2017, so a long time ago, is when I started to naturally kind of shift toward creative nonfiction and eventually fiction writing and other forms of art making. And it was kind of like that type of feeling where you're like, why wasn't I doing this all along? Like, this was what I was always supposed to do. And it's what I liked when I was a kid. And, you know, it's what I always wanted to do, but I sort of... I love journalism, you know, and it made a lot of sense for me kind of when I had to go to uni, you know, it made a lot of sense 
for a decade of my life, maybe, but it naturally came to an end. And that's not to say I'm not interested in projects like this one or on sort of long form nonfiction or long form journalism. I still hope to do that. And I'm working on some of that as a day job and as a self-employed person like that did not didn't make any sense for me anymore. It was just too much of a struggle and I didn't want to do it anymore. So it didn't you can make it work, but you have to really want to. It's not a stable day job to just like pay your bills. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I feel like most people who get into journalism, you know, we started once off being these really, you know, children with colourful imaginations and uh, really being into creative writing. And then suddenly it's like a hen laying eggs every morning, you know, having to push out these pieces under a lot of time pressure. And um, I mean, it's great to hear that you kind of reconnect with your creative side. And yeah, that kind of leads me on to the next question of, you're investing more and more time into writing novels other than kind of the obvious freedom to be able to write what you want and, you know, choose your own audience. What advantages would you say that creative writing provides that journalistic writing can't? This may be different for every writer. I mean, I don't know if it provides any advantages. It's just something that I'm compelled to do. And it's not something I would advise doing unless you are compelled to do it. It's something that you just do. It doesn't really make much sense monetarily either. You know, you're if you write a book, you don't really know what what you're, especially a fiction fiction book. You just don't know if you're gonna sell it or how much you're gonna get for it, and you have to want to do it anyway. So it gives you so 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 much, or it gives me so much, but it's all kind of a different kind of fulfillment. It's not practical considerations in terms of writing, as you asked, like the writing craft. Of course, it it gives you a lot of freedom. Many writers have said this, but oftentimes writing fiction allows you to write the truth in ways that if you try to write it literally, factually, it's just not really possible. You know, it gives you sort of a way to do that. And yeah, even this is actually why um, when I veered toward creative writing, I found it really hard to maintain journalism as you know my day job as well because it is the same tool but it's completely it's it's a completely different craft I think so Mm -hmm. it's like make it's like crafting a painting versus painting a white wall in your house it's like it can be something functional like that has its beauty and it can be really fulfilling it's a completely different beast I I really thought that was a great analogy to think of that, you know, with you, you know, painting a wall in your house and then, you know, doing a painting um, and this functionality perspective. So, you know, thinking about more of the novels that you've been working on at the moment um, or over the past uh, few months and years during your residency and recent stay at the Joshua Tree Highlands Artist Residency, you were revising and editing the sections of your novel Ultramarine, which itself is set in Joshua Tree. Could you tell us a bit more about this novel without giving too much away? Yeah, that was a really wonderful experience. Um, Part of my novel is set in the desert in California, in Joshua Tree, as you said. Um, And part of it is set in London and also in Catalonia. So it was wonderful to get that residency in situ, which I got on the fourth attempt, by the way. So that's always good, I think, for writers and artists to know, like, please keep trying. It was great because I got to do research on the ground and it was a wonderful, just dreamy place to to write and just to be for a couple months. 
I can't really say much about my novel yet because I it's better um, to keep it in my head for the time being. But I'll just say that it's about um, three childhood friends who fall out and then reunite in their 30s and who um, grapple with questions about leaving and coming back um, when you've made a life in a culture different than your own. I just want to be clear, it's not autobiographical at all, but of course it includes, you know, questions I have been pondering for the last five years or so, just how long I've been working on it. Okay, great. And, you know, aside to this, you also are working on a memoir called Forget the Sun, which is about memory, art, healing, centering on several generations of women and queer people investigating the emotional uh, ramifications of the Spanish Civil War. What led you to want to write this piece? Back in 2019, after a couple years of writing essays and exploring different, you know, things in my personal writing, I got a Developing Your Creative Practice grant from the Arts Council England, which is a wonderful grant that allows you a period of time you know, where you can devote yourself to your practice fully. Um, and it's, you know, as the name indicates, it kind of allows you to experiment and explore maybe new directions for for your work. Um, so I think I see it clearly now, you know, there were seeds that were planted maybe five years ago, maybe, you know, when I was born. And then in the last five years, and especially in this period in 2019, I started to kind of explore and, you know, the seeds were growing and I was taking care of them. And, well, it's clear that this project and the novel, you know, both emerged from this period. This memoir slash creative nonfiction project was kind of the first big project I started to work on. And then the novel kind of sprouted out of that. And possibly my next novel also sprouted out of that. I've got maybe 30,000 words of that, but it's in the drawer for now. And yeah, I mean, this is a project that I was really scared of writing because it was very, very personal. It started with interviews uh, with my grandmother about the Spanish Civil War and the dictatorship. And then I went to several workshops where, you know, I, I workshopped it with other writers and uh, I did a lot of work on, on it. And then I, I panicked or I freaked out or I just needed to hit pause. And also my novel was then really taking off and it was what I, you know, what I was enjoying working on secretly instead of the big project. And it's always great to have two projects because when you feel like you can't work on one, you have the other one as your, mm -hmm. you know, a fair project, as they call it sometimes. So I also realized this could take me 10 years or who knows how long. And it's a big subject. And I didn't want to just just do it like in a superficial way or in a way that felt like I was maybe cannibalizing certain things because you know because it it would be published or whatever you know like I wanted to be thoughtful and take a lot of time with it yeah it's still there you know I'm working on it occasionally but it's mostly waiting for when I finish this novel and yeah it's a big topic for people of I think my generation in Spain a lot of other writers I think especially women writers and queer writers are investigating these topics because we're the first generation that was born in democracy. And um, it was easy to feel like this prosperous type of energy or the official line that everything was in the past and not to be talked about. That clearly kind of falls apart soon enough as you grow up. Also, 
I, like so, so many other people in Spain, like was lucky to have grandparents who explained the war. Our parents grew up in the dictatorship, so they also talked about that. So it becomes really clear quite soon that um, the country is full of trauma. And I mean, there are literally mass graves all over the country with more than 100,000 disappeared people still in mass graves. A lot of secrets and a lot of trauma has literally been buried. So it's a project that I'm really passionate about. I don't know exactly what will come out of it or when, but something will. I think that's a really good approach to have. And I mean, with something that's, you know, so personal and really raw, um, I think trying to push it through this like timeline, it just would lose its authenticity completely. So from my perspective, at least, I think it's, uh, it seems like a really genuinely written piece uh, with a lot of care. Thinking about a memoir about the emotional ramifications of the Spanish Civil War, I would assume that what comes up a lot is, you know, generational trauma for many families and thinking about how younger generations are going to navigate their way through this. And at the Goethe Institute, we're, we're really working on at the moment to endeavour to tell difficult histories through our cultural heritage programmes. For example, we have Practicing Freedom and Now Lives of Objects. And I just wanted to, you know, from you writing this piece, if you could, you know, share any wisdom or anything that you noticed doing this process of how can we discuss, you know, traumatic or difficult histories in a better way? Or have you learned anything or experienced anything in writing this novel? It's really hard as an artist to answer this because I'm in the middle of the project. So I definitely want to say, I'll tell you in five years or in 10 years when I when I've completed it, because this is the question, maybe. This is one of the questions. I also want to say some of this is for a mental health professional to answer, for sure. Um, I think artists, we maybe are best equipped to ask questions. I don't know if we can answer them. Maybe we can complicate the questions or ask even more questions out of, out of a simple question. But I actually would recommend a book called The Body Keeps the Score to anyone who's interested in trauma, how it how it stays in the body and how it works in the brain as well. The body gives the score and the author is called Bessel van der Kolk. All I have is more questions. I don't have a clear answer for you. (laughs) Yeah, do you know what? It's funny. I actually read that book. It's fantastic. It's really, and I think it does a really great job at kind of knitting together years and years of research, but also many case stories. And I think this is the one thing that we can kind of take away from everything is that we, we can think about trauma and we can think about war, we can think about it in numbers and f- figures and research and stuff like this. But at the end of the day, these are people, these are people's lives. And, you know, these, this, these stories pass through generations, especially at the Goethe Institute. We're trying our best to, you know, be really sensitive. And as you said, it's not just for us as cultural practitioners to or artists to deal with this. You know, there needs to be input from all areas. And what's really important is that the voices uh, are carried throughout. Thank you so much for your time, Marta. And I'm sure everybody will be really looking forward to reading your novels when they come out. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. Special thanks to our guest on this episode, Marta Balsors. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more.
both in our institute on Exhibition Road and online. You can find out more on our website at goethe.de forward slash London. I'm your producer and host, Lucy Rowan.